You are now listening to a member of the Disney Podcast family. Head over to Disney Podcast family on Instagram to see all the latest posts for this show and links to other great Disney podcasts. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Chris, and you're listening to a podcast that believes in dreams, that places trust in the magic of imagination, that is always the first star to the right, and where the light in the window is always on. Join as we discuss the views from Walt's apartment. everyone and welcome to Walt's Apartment Podcast. We are powered by thedisinsider.com. We are here for a special interview today with Disney author and historian Didier Getz. Didier, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you, Sam and, and Brianna. Thank you. The pleasure is ours. Brianna, how are you? I am great. So, Didier, do you want to start by telling us how you like your your Disney why like how you got into Disney where your passion first came into play? Sure, it's it's a long story, but I'm I'm going to try and make it as short as as possible. I'm I'm French, as you can probably uh, um, hear from my accent, um, and I was born in Paris, and I grew up in Paris uh, reading uh, Disney comic books. That's really uh, the, the way you discover Disney in Europe is via comic books, uh, which are very popular in in countries like France, Italy, and so on and so forth. And so, growing up in France, that's that where that's where I thought Mickey Mouse came from. I thought he came from comic books. And then I realized, no, no, he comes from animated cartoons. And that was a first revelation. And then when I, when I grew up, when I grew up, uh, I was, I was still, I still loved the, the whole uh, Disney universe and animated features and so on and so forth. But obviously growing up, when I became a teenager, I realized, oh, you know what? There are actually incredibly talented artists that were doing all of this uh, and that are doing all of this. And then around that time, uh, when I was, I think, 16, 17, the Disney studio decided to open a subsidiary uh, in near Paris. And um, and I thought, whoa, this is interesting. So there, there are going to be a lot of Disney artists here. And I, I wonder if I would be able to um, to learn more about them by interviewing some of them. So I contacted um, the new subsidiary of the Walt Disney Studio in, in Paris. And I said, you know, I'm... Um, I, I write articles about animation for an American magazine called uh, uh, Animation Magazine. And, and that magazine had never heard of me before and didn't know I was using them to get my foot in the door. Uh, and so I said, you know, I, I would love to write uh, to write an article about uh, the opening of the, the Walt Disney Studios uh, subsidiary in Paris. And to do that, I would like to interview the two heads of the studio, uh, Paul and Gaetan Brizzi. And and they surprised me by coming back and saying, "Yeah, Paul and Gaetan would be uh, would be happy to talk to you, and uh, the interview can happen. When when can you come?" And so um, I went there. I interviewed Paul and Gaetan. Fortunately, the interview was in French because my English at the time wasn't good enough to conduct an interview in in English. And um, and 
after I conducted the interview, I transcribed that interview, uh, sent it to a friend of mine uh, in Paris for him to translate for me to English, because again, my English wasn't good enough to even do that. And he did. So it took a while, but he did. And then I sent that to Animation uh, Magazine. And they said, oh, this is great. We're just looking for um, for a piece about the, the new subsidiary in, in Paris. So yeah, we'll run it. And so that was my first published uh, published interview. And then I thought, okay, well, this is really cool. I was I was um, I loved all of the stories that the the, the Britsies had had shared with me about their creative process and so on. So I thought, okay, well, you know what? I, I wonder if I could interview more uh, Disney artists. And uh, my English was slowly improving or fairly quickly improving because I had really strong motivation for that to happen. And so um, I learned that Andreas Deja, the uh, uh, the, the, the Disney legend, uh, the, the animator behind Jafar and, and behind Scar and, and all of that, was going to be in Paris to animate Mickey on uh, Runaway, Runaway Brain, uh, the, the, the Mickey short. And so I thought, well, I, I wonder if I could interview him. And, and that happened. And then I interviewed Glenn Keane. And then and then he grew from there. And, and I started uh, interviewing people also were based in the in the US and, and the whole thing started that way. That's amazing. I love <laughs> I love the story of you using like the fake connection to to get in. Um we we've interviewed a few Imagineers and it reminded me of how I believe Brian Collins, I don't know if you're familiar with him, um he <laughs> he sent like a ransom note or something as part of his show writing um application. So it's just that people who who are so involved in Disney culture have this creativity that is unmatched. I even see that in like our podcast families. Everybody is constantly creating something and you kind of took that and you you created a destiny for yourself out of what you were excited to do. And I, I think that's really awesome. Um, so after you went from articles and and the such, how did you get into full on like Disney history books? Because you've got quite the collection under your belt. Sure. So so after I started uh, interviewing the, those artists, I uh, also started meeting quite a few people in, in France and, and abroad that were really into Disney history. And at some point in uh, 1998, I was approached by uh, a French uh, Disney enthusiast called Alain Ité, who said, Didier, um, You've, you've, um, attended the opening of, um, uh, Disneyland Paris and you have interviewed a few of the artists who worked on Disneyland Paris and so on and so forth. And I wonder if you would be interested in writing a book about the, the creation of Disneyland Paris. Am I? Would I? Yes, of course I would. I would love to do that. But I also know, Alain, that it takes a lot of, uh, efforts to get all of the approvals to do that. So as long as you handle that, then I'll I'll interview the artist and, and write the book. He says that that's great. And he says, and I'll actually publish it. I'll I'll create a publishing house to actually publish that book. Well it took uh, it took us or it took him two years to get the approval for us to uh to do that book. And then uh, when that happened in two thousand I went to uh uh, to Glendale, uh, to Walt Disney Imagineering, to interview 75 of the Imagineers who had worked on uh, the creation of Disneyland Paris. I, I spent uh, 
a week there and it was literally from morning to uh, to late evening just interviewing 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 uh, all of those artists and it was absolutely fascinating i mean the, the interview with uh, tony baxter the, the the top imagineer for the disneyland paris project supposed to last like an hour two hours it lasted like six hours it was just absolutely insane and and just fascinating from start to finish um and um and after that happened um uh, Alain said, okay, well, you're, you're now ready to, to write the book. I'm like, yes, I am. So I, I did. I, I wrote, uh, uh, the, uh, what, what became the big art book on the creation of Disneyland Paris, Disneyland Paris from sketch to reality. Um, and then it took us two more years to get the approvals from Disney to get the book released. Uh, so it was a very, very involved process, very tough process. It took us, uh, as long from start to finish on that project that it took for the Imagineers to create and build uh, Disneyland Paris, which is a bit ironic, uh, but but that was the first uh, that, that that was the first book, and I thought you know what I actually uh, um, even despite all of the hurdles and so on and so forth I love that that project so I'm I'm wondering if I could do more uh, more books um, and one of the things I realized is you know you have all of those historians of animation and of Imagineering who have conducted those interviews in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And those interviews are in tapes that are deteriorating and those historians are not getting younger. And, and so if we don't preserve all of those interviews for future generations of historians and for people who are really interested in that history like I am, uh, then, then those interviews are going to be gone forever. So I started contacting all of those um, uh, historians and, and I told them, you know, uh, in the past, releasing uh, collections of your uh, interviews in book form would have been a bit difficult because there would have been uh, inventories issues. There would have been uh, uh, qu quite a lot of um, um, practical issues in the middle. But now with print on demand, this is much easier to do. Uh, and, and we can release books of really great quality um, really easily. Um, it's just a lot of work, but that's all it is. Uh, and so I said, would you be willing to let me release some of your interviews in book form in a series that I'm going to launch called The Waltz People? And they said, you know what? Yeah, actually, quite a few of them said, yeah, we're, we're interested. We'll, we'll give it a try. And, uh, and so I did. I, I started releasing uh, their interviews uh, in book form, uh, again, for future generations of Disney historian. And I thought, okay, well, that might be a project where I'll have like five, ten volumes, something like that, to preserve these interviews. Well, um, at this, um, at this day, we're already at 26 volumes released thousands and thousands of pages of interviews and uh, at least 10 other volumes are still to come. And so that, that was a, that was a really fun project. That was the second uh, book project that I undertook. Uh, and then I'll, I'll tell you about the third one in a second, which involves the daughter of Walt Disney. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your, in your little, you mean? Yeah, yeah. We all, we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, oh, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Me, me, me. Yo, look, 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 look. We all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We going to have this, like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta lie, don't play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit serious. 
So, Brianna, did you want to ask that question before we go into that third? Yeah, we can so just we're on the topic of artists and art. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you talked about um, you finding Disney comic books and then learning about artists. But is there like one specific moment or one specific thing that you had that really made you go, yeah, this is what I want to focus on art animation. This is like the passion that I want to stick with. Well, it, it's funny because I, I also started as a collector and I was collecting uh, um, Disney items from the 1930s from Europe. And I didn't know exactly why I was doing that. Uh, there, there was something very appealing in terms of the design of those objects and the design of especially Mickey Mouse on those items that I that I really loved. But, but there was something else, and, and that something else I realized little by little was the fact that none of the history of those items had been documented properly. And so I realized that I was collecting less because I liked owning those items, but more because I liked digging into the history uh, of, uh, of, of the creation of those items. And so uh, little by little, I realized, you know what, what I'm really interested in when it comes to Disney is the history. Uh, I like understanding uh, how the company was built. I like to understand the creative process um, that 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 was at play when the artists were creating uh, both the shorts and the animated features. I like to understand who um, was at the origin of the creation of the parks. Uh, and so all of that, little by little, it, there wasn't one specific moment, but all of that coalesced little by little. And, and then when I started realizing that there were big gaps that I couldn't fill by reading uh, the books that existed, I'm like, you know what? If if no one has researched those subject matters, then I'll do the work. Uh, I'll do Go it. Go right to the because, source. <laughs> be, because I want to read about it. So I, I want to research it for me to understand it. And then maybe if I'm interested in this, maybe others will be. Uh, and so I'll write those books for myself first and foremost, and then and then share that with other people because there might be a few other crazy crazies like me, uh, nerds like me that 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 love to read about that. Well, you're looking at two of them. <laughs> I was going to say there are plenty. So, and I was uh, just thinking our our co-host Lewis couldn't be with us today. He's at MouseCon, I believe, or he at Disneyland. One of the two. He's yeah. at Disneyland, but he would absolutely love you. Um, he is our like, he's our he's a digital animator digital designer. So he like this background that we have behind, he created that. And, you know, we've got some other really cool art that he creates for our fans that join us on Patreon and stuff and all of our graphics. So he absolutely loves your behind the scenes look at artists and animators. He, he likes to deep dive into that history as well. So I'm sad that he's missing you today, but I know he's going to have a blast listening back to this. Do you want to tell us about that third project? Sure, absolutely. So in uh, back, I believe in 2011, I, I got an email from Diane Disney-Miller, whom the, the daughter of Walt Disney, uh, whom I had gotten to know when, when she was um, starting to develop the, um, the project for what became the Walt Disney Family Museum. And, uh, and, and my wife and I had met her a couple of times before that. And, and one day, when I was uh, still living at the time in Madrid, Spain, I, I received an email out of the blue from her saying, Didier, there's, uh, there's this incredible photo of my, uh, of my father uh, meeting Louis Lumiere, one of the pioneers of of the cinema and and I don't have any context about that photo and I wonder what you can tell me about it and I'm like you know what I don't really know anything about that photo but let me dig 
And, and the digging I started doing on that photograph led to a full book on the visit that Walt Disney and his family uh, did to Europe in 1935. Because when I started digging uh, for more information about that photograph, the first thing I realized was it had been shot in Paris during that trip in 1935. But then the other thing I realized is that most of what had been written about that trip was completely wrong uh, or incomplete or imprecise. Uh, and, and that there were so many additional details that could be added to the story and corrected and, and made more uh, um, precise that it, it definitely justified um, digging much, much, much deeper into the story. The other thing that I realized is I'm lucky enough to... Uh, to speak French uh, because I was born in France, uh, to speak English because I learned it at school, and, and also to speak fluent Spanish and Portuguese. And, and that meant that I could start digging into uh, uh, newspaper archives that a lot of other people would not be able to explore properly. Uh, and so I started digging into articles in, in French, articles in English, articles in Spanish, articles in Portuguese. And, and because those languages are so similar to Italian, I was also able to, to read and, and decrypt some, uh, some, some interviews and, and articles in Italian. And that started giving me a much, much, much richer uh, understanding of that whole trip to Europe in 1935 and, and also of the origins of the, the Walt Disney Company in Europe uh, in those years. And so, um, we, we finally have that, that complete in-depth account of, of that trip, which was uh, so uh, critical and so uh, seminal for a lot of the things, a lot of the projects that, that, that took place after that uh, uh, within the Disney Studios. What is the title of that text? Because I think I only have bits and pieces of that story, and I would like to read that one. <laughs> sure. It's called Disney's Grand Tour. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it focuses really on that two-month trip to, to Europe uh, in 1935. Because I feel like I'm one of those people who I, I got the bits and pieces, but if you're saying there's more, then I want to know more because that's a very fascinating story. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll just share one one story, which, which drove me completely nuts during the research process, which is that uh, in a lot of places... Um, Authors had written that Walt Disney had met with uh, Benito Mussolini during his trip to, to Europe. Yes, I heard that. And uh, and and um, Walt Disney's daughter Diane said no, uh, they did not meet. Uh, and my mother always told me that they hadn't met. And and so during a year. I kept finding evidence that they had met and then evidence that they had not met and evidence that they had met. And, and that, that drove me completely insane uh, to, because it's like, whoa, those two incredibly famous, visible people, we can't establish less than 100 years later if they really met or not. That's that's incredible. And then in the end, I was finally able to establish that they had not met, um, that Walt had met Mussolini's family, but not Benito Mussolini himself. And I established that because a historian who was conducting research on a parallel subject contacted me to get some information about some photographs that I had found. And when he contacted me, I realized that he was based in Italy and he was based very close to the uh, state archives. And so I said, could you do me a favor? Could you go to the state archives and ask to look at Benito Mussolini's uh, daily diary and check those two specific dates to see if there is a, a meeting with Walt Disney in, in the diary? Because those are the only two dates where they could have met. 
And, and if they had met, the meeting would be in the diary. And so he came back, he said, there is no meeting with Walt in, in the diary. And I'm like, tailored, finally. Yeah. I have the <laughs> Again, right happen. to the source. Mm-hmm. Right to the source. It's amazing the work that historians do because there's so much effort that gets put in. You have to literally follow these breadcrumbs. And then obviously the collaborative effort from historians around the world is making a difference for you. Um, what about any other, what about your next project? What happened after that? <laughs> Keep telling us more. <laughs> so the next project, so I, uh, in 2012, I was um, lucky enough to move to the United States and to start living in, in Miami. And when that happened, I'm like, okay, I'm much closer to the source uh, of a lot of the information. It's going to be easier for me to travel to Los Angeles, not I'm based here in, in the US. And I, I'm, I'm like, I want to actually pitch a very ambitious project, uh, either to Disney editions or to Chronicle Books, which were the two publishers that could really undertake a, um, a, a project that I conceived as a very illustrated uh, type of art books. Uh, and uh, and so um, I think it was in 2012 or 2013 that I was at a dinner with some friends and finally the idea gelled in my mind. I, I had always been fascinated by pre-production artwork uh, for the Disney movies, the what, what we call concept art. Uh, and, and I had collected a little bit of concept art when I could afford it from people like Ken Anderson and so on and so forth. And I thought, you know, I would really, really like to understand a lot more about Disney's key concept artists. And I bet that other people might might like to, uh, um, to see a lot more artwork and to understand who those concept artists were, especially because I had been frustrated for years and years and years by the fact that uh, I owned all of the art books published about Disney, and I kept seeing the same artwork come back over and over and over again in those art books. And, and you would have those, those same like 200, 300 pieces of concept art uh, that you would see again and again and again in all of those books, where I knew that they were thousands and thousands of incredible pieces that were preserved at the animation research library at the Disney studios. And so I'm like, this is crazy. We, we need to see a lot more of this. We need to, to bring a lot more to the surface. And so I pitched that project to Chronicle Books of a series of, at the time, five art books about Disney's concept artists that would start in the 1930s and then end up in uh, 2020. Uh, and then that became actually I realized that one of the volumes would be too short for what I was trying to do. And so that that became a series of six volumes. And, and Chronicle said when I told them that they said, yeah, but not one more. Six is the maximum we'll do. We'll, we'll support you there, but not one more. Like, OK, that's great. And so I still I started this research project on what became they drew as they pleased the hidden art of Disney. Um, and 95% of the information in the text has never been released before in book form. It uh, was really brand new. And I discovered the diaries, the lost diaries of some of the artists, including one diary, which was written in German uh, with the whole correspondence in Hungarian. That's for Ferdinand Horvath. And I bought those diaries, which had been lost for 10 years or 20 years, actually. Um, I found lost autobiographies, lost autobiographical notes, correspondence, and and tons and tons and tons of artwork. Uh, some of it, a lot of it, uh, at the animation research library, so at the basically uh, one of the, the visual archives of of Disney, uh, and and 
we opened there uh, boxes and boxes of material that had not been opened in 60, 70 years. Uh, and then also artwork, which was preserved by the families of some of those artists. And, and some of them didn't even know that they had uh, artwork. And, and I, would, I would spend weeks and then months like following up and following up and, 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 um, and, 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 and trying to understand if they had something. And then they would be like, oh, yeah, actually, I remember one drawing. And then they were like, but that drawing, we're not sure it's very relevant. And it was like a, an absolutely key drawing to understand the, the history. I'm like, well, if you have that, what else do you have? And so and so they would keep keep looking and looking until the point where that, that specific person I'm thinking about came back and said, well, actually, it was a little bit more than what I thought in the attic. And, and in the attic, he had like 150 pieces of original art, artwork, um, including some from an abandoned project, uh, including uh, others that, that would complete storyboards that, that the Disney studio uh, has in their archives and so on and so forth. So it was just like an absolute treasure trove. That's amazing. So I just, I can't imagine having that in my attic and not knowing it's there, but it was so normal for their families because these are their families. Like they're used to that creative expression and them probably constantly sketching and drawing and not knowing what's relevant or not because it's just who they were. Um, as creators. So I heard you say you pitched that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to most of your books that you've written, have you pitched most of them or have more of them been kind of like, hey, we would like you to do this kind of pitch to you? Well, it's it's a little bit of a mix of both. So um, I, I pitched that series, they, they drew as they pleased uh, to Chronicle Books. So that, that was a, a very definite pitch. Um, the the book on Disneyland Paris, uh, I was approached by Analité, who said, would you like to write this? And I said, yes. The um, the, the book, as, as you know, the, as I just described, the, the book on uh, the trip to Europe, Disney's Grand Tour, uh, th- that really evolved organically. Uh, and then at some point, I told Diane, I said, you know, uh, there is a book there. Would you uh, would you finance the publication? Because the, the, the rights, especially for the photographs, were incredibly expensive and so uh, she was kind enough and that was right before she passed away sadly and uh, she didn't see the book released but she uh, she wrote the uh, the introduction uh, the, the foreword and she uh, also financed the release the, of the book uh, and so that that evolved really organically um waltz people uh, that's a project that that well that when I pitched to the contributors and, and I financed myself. Uh, and then um, uh, f- finally, uh, the, the, the new series of books that, that uh, we're releasing at the moment, uh, that's a series that's being released by the Hyperion Historical Alliance Press. Uh, and so the Hyperion Historical Alliance uh, is a nonprofit organization that uh, uh, myself and quite a few other Disney historians started about 10 years ago. Uh, when we realized two things. The first thing is that all of those documents that I'd been finding in the collection of the artists uh, would would disappear uh, when when some of those people would be gone um, because there is a tendency when someone passes away to either sell the material or not know what it is and throw it away. And so I thought, well, you know what? We need to, uh, we need to try and digitize all of this in high resolution uh, because we want that to be available for future generations of historians. Uh, and so quite a few of us had started meeting at informal lunches over the years. Uh, and then those lunches had grown and grown and grown to the point where they, they, they were becoming uh, uh, difficult to manage um, at 
the, the personal level, they, we needed uh, an official nonprofit to manage the, 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 the money that was coming in, frankly, for those lunches and then uh, the whole structure of those lunches. But but I thought, okay, well, this is this is the right structure to also um, to also start digitizing via the nonprofit all of those documents. And so the the main reason for creating the nonprofit was to digitize those rare documents that would be lost otherwise, be, be they interviews conducted by historians or be they um, uh, pieces of artwork or be they correspondence and so on and so forth. And then after that nonprofit was created, we quite a few years later, we realized back in 2018, 2019, um, that we wanted to share some of that material with, with others, with people who are not part of the uh, nonprofit, who are not Disney historian, but who care deeply about the history. Um, and that we wanted to put all of this in context. And, and to do that, uh, my dream was to really launch a series of books, a series of monographs, meaning books focused on one very specific subject, very in-depth. Um, but I didn't want those those monographs to be pure text because Disney is such a visual uh, story, is such a visual, um, what they do, um, it's, it's a very visual medium, obviously, uh, that, that they use both uh, um, when it comes to movies and, and when it comes to the theme parks. And so you need to see what you're talking about. And I knew that that would be difficult. I knew from experience on, on the book on Disneyland Paris, I knew from experience on the, the books, uh, working on the books uh, for Chronicle Books, that uh, getting the authorization from Disney to release lots of illustrations in an art book would not be easy. But fortunately, we, we got the support of Disney. And when we pitched them this series as a scholarly series um, uh, that would focus on, on uh, subject matters that Disney would not normally focus on for their own publications, they said, yes, yes, we're, we're willing to support you, uh, especially the uh, the director of the Disney archives, Becky Klein, and, uh, and and quite a few people at the Animation Research Library said, we're, we're on board, we'll, uh, uh, we'll support you. Mary Walsh, the head of the, the Animation Research Library, Fox Carney, and so on, they, they all said, yeah, we'll support you. Uh, and so they, they, they opened really the uh, um, the doors of the archives uh, to us. They opened the doors of the animation research library to us and the photo library. Uh, and, and we started releasing this series of monographs, which had been my my dream my whole life. Uh, the first one being a, a monograph about the creation of Fun and Fancy Free uh, by J.B. Kaufman. The second one being um, the recently released The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures by yours truly. Uh, and then we have quite a lot of others, uh, quite a lot of other monographs uh, in the works, including quite a few about the, the Imagineering and the early days of Imagineering and, and Disneyland 59 and, and so on and so forth. And those are taking a little bit more time than we were expecting, uh, but they will, they should be released relatively soon. So that was going to be my next question. It seems like there's a lot more, obviously, there's a lot more work put in in the pre-planning stages when you're doing a Disney history book. So you're spending a lot, like how long is a typical research time frame? Well, it is difficult. It has always been for me very difficult to give an answer to that because I, I know how long it takes me to to write uh, one of those books. Uh, but, but the research process uh, goes on and on and on, year after year after year. Uh, a book like The Origins of All Disney's True Life Adventures, um, you can say that the research took a year or you can say that the research took 20 years uh, because in reality, 
if I hadn't researched first um, they drew as they please, for example, I would not have stumbled upon a lot of the documents that, that I used uh, uh, for the origins of all these Nestor life adventures. If I had not uh, released the series Walt's People, I would not have had the accumulated knowledge that I needed to understand where the gaps in the history are and to start digging into those those gaps and to and to try and, and bridge those gaps. Um, and and my, um, my image here isn't the greatest one, but <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the reality is I would not have understood what, what we didn't know uh, if I had not learned so much uh, before on the, on the rest of the, the history. And then you realize, oh, but okay, now I understand exactly point A and point C, but how did they go from point A to point C? Well, what's what's in the middle? What, what happened there? I understand Walt Disney uh, before the war uh, working on, on Bambi. I understand that after the war, he launched a new series called The True Life Adventures. But how? How did he go from Snow White and Bambi to the True Life Adventures? What, what's, what's the transition there? Uh, what are all of the steps in between? What are the things he considered and then discarded? What are the things he, he, he focused on that, that were stepping stones? Uh, and who were the people around him who helped him? And I, I don't understand. I don't know any of that. So let me yeah. dig. Let me dig a lot deeper and, and try and find out. McKenna, correct me if I'm wrong, but the connection to that story was bringing the live deer in for Bambi and then he saw how people were interacting with the deer and then wanted to see how other animals were in nature and that was like the first nature docuseries to, to an extent that's part of the that's part of the process the other part of the process they did really the genesis uh, the, the first element of the, the genesis is that for Bambi uh, his artists need reference footage of the deer and reference footage also of the um, of, of the woods uh, that that would give us give them a sense of of what it looks like in Maine and what how the deer uh, um, act and react and so on and so forth. And so he says, well, what's the best way to do that, uh, especially when it comes to the background. Uh, is to send uh, uh, someone to Maine to go and, and film nature there and, and actually not film nature, to, to actually make photographs of, of the different backgrounds uh, in, in Maine. And so he finds uh, that one of his artists is, is a great photographer and is also from Maine. And so he sends that artist, a person called Jake Day, uh, to Maine to do some research on, on Bambi. And, and Jake Day actually goes there with a friend of his uh, called Lester Hall. And, and, and Lester Hall, thankfully for us, actually kept a diary uh, of, that, of that trip. And so we have his diary, we have some of the correspondence and so on. And so you start seeing the interaction with the studio, which is really very close to what the interaction would be when they were corresponding with the cinematographers uh, in Alaska or in Africa and so on and so forth later on for the True Life Adventures. So you start you start establishing a little bit of the pattern of, of what would be uh, the, the, the work style after that, uh, after the war. And then, and then during the war, uh, the Walt Disney Studio starts producing educational uh, shorts for the army and for the navy and so on and so forth. And so they start learning how to teach uh, via animation and via live action. Uh, and, they, and they produce a documentary on the Amazon uh, River called the Amazon Awakens. Uh, and when they do that, they use uh, um, 
a couple of cinematographers uh, whom they send to, um, um, to, to the Amazon, to, to Latin America. Um, and, and the people who correspond with them from the studio, uh, the people who give them directions, the, the people who um, send them storyboards and so on and so forth, are the exact same people as the ones who a few years later uh, will be involved in the the, the 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 first true life adventures, both the ones that were produced and the ones that were not produced. And so, it is through the work of the studio during World War II that another part of the foundation is laid. And and so this is really like that step by step process is is quite fascinating because then you find um, all of the pre production artwork on those projects. Then you find the correspondence. You find uh, the, the the memos that they were sending to each other, uh, and you find also the abandoned projects, the ones that we didn't know existed. Uh, those projects that I had found at the animation research library when I was uh, researching the other projects, they drew as they pleased. And when I was digging into the animation library files, I was seeing all of those storyboards, which I had no idea what they were. I had no idea what the context was and so on and so forth. And, and finally, um, all of the pieces came in place when I started researching um, the origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures because that's what they had been created for. Uh, those were storyboards for the abandoned True Life Adventures. And so you'll see quite a lot of them in uh, in the book, The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. And, and that book is out now. It just came out a couple months ago, right? It came out last year. Yes, that's yeah. right. Right right at the time of uh, D23 Expo. That's yes. Right. And you guys will be announcing the next part of that series at this, the upcoming D23 this year, correct? That's right, but I can I can all I, I can already share You can uh, divulge a little. <laughs> oh, I can I can share a few details. Yeah, I mean, we're um, working on quite a few um, new volumes uh, from that series. Uh, the, the first one uh, is a project in collaboration with JD Kaufman um, Ted Thomas, the son of Disney artist uh, Frank Thomas, uh, and and myself, and what that that uh, monograph is about, it's about Walt Disney, Walt Disney's trip to Latin America in 1941, uh, and 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 obviously with his team of artists, they went there for two and a half months uh, to conduct research for what became Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. Um, they, there have been a few things written about that that subject, of course, in the past, and even a documentary uh, yeah. on the subject by Ted Thomas. But it's going to be the first time we we go on that trip with them uh, day by day and and tell you exactly what happened on the day by day basis, also based on various correspondence and oh, so on wow. and so forth, and and also based on a massive collection of photographs that we had not seen before. Uh, and so we'll we'll have 225 uh, photographs in in that book. Uh, none of them um, have been seen before in in book form. And so we're we're really going to go on the trip with them, with maps, with uh, um, we're just going to follow them step by step. And so that that's going to be that's going to be fun. So that's one um, project that we're working on. Um, I mentioned, obviously, Disneyland 59, um, mm -hmm. about the expansion of Disneyland in, in 1959. Um, there is a series of books that, um, a series of monographs that Imagineer Tom Morris is working on at the moment about the origins of Walt Disney Imagineering or the early days of Walt Disney Imagineering. Mm -hmm. This is going to be, that series is going to be, 
critical for understanding of, of um, the, the story behind WED and behind Walt Disney Engineering and who did what and where were they uh, and, and, and how did the whole thing uh, come together and how did it evolve and so on. And this is going to be one of the, the most important books uh, or most important series of monographs about Disney history ever. I'm, I'm just so excited about it. Oh, um, I, I'm excited for that too. Imagineering and uh, studying Imagineers and how everything got started is is my passion. Um, so I have Tom's email. I may just have to reach out and see if he'll come on and talk to us about that. <laughs> so we will see. Uh, so what does your creative process look like when you're starting to work on a text? Sure, absolutely. So I can um, I, I can give you a sense of that by by mentioning two very specific examples. One of the examples is going to be the recently released "The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures," and the other example is going to be um, one uh, um, one book that, or actually two books, I'm working on at the moment about Mickey Mouse in the 1930s on stage and on radio. Uh, so what happens? Uh, you can have one of two things happen usually. The, the first thing that, that can happen is there's a little bit of serendipity where uh, you're researching stuff for another project like I, like I was doing for the Drew As They Pleased. And then while I'm researching the Drew As They Pleased, I stumble upon an amazing collection of documents from an artist that I've never heard about. And that artist was a person called Holling C. Holling. Holling C. Holling was an illustrator for kids' books uh, in the 1930s. And he was hired by the Disney studio in the late 30s, early 40s uh, to come and work on a lot of different projects, but especially on educational projects uh, for the studio during World War II. And when I started looking at his correspondence, when I started reading his correspondence, when I started digging deeper into his, his documents, I was like, oh my God, I'm starting to have clues to a lot of the things that were happening at the studio during those years that I had no idea about. Uh, this is really, really interesting. I don't understand how it connects to the, the rest, but this is really interesting. I want to, I want to know more. Uh, and so I mentioned earlier that I was discovering the, the storyboards um, at, at the Animation Research Library around the same time, and and that started to click. I started connecting the the various pieces, what Holding C. Holding was doing was what I was finding at the Animation Research Library. I'm like, hmm, this is really, really cool. There might be a story there. But but at the time, I thought, okay, well, this, this might be a long essay or something like that. Well, in parallel to that, I also stumbled upon, while I was working on Walt's People, I stumbled upon the collection of documents related to Al and Elma Milot. And Al and Elma Milot were the, the two cinematographers that were behind uh, the work on, um, obviously, Seal Island, the first one of the True Life Adventures, the first one of the uh, People and Places also series, uh, uh, the Alaskan Eskimo. And, and they did also a lot of other True Life Adventures. Uh, and, and so I stumbled upon their papers and there were some diaries in there. There was correspondence and so on and so forth. And I realized, oh, this is interesting. This actually intersects with some of the documents that I found in the Holding Sea Holding collection. Oh, well, maybe there is a bigger story than just an essay. Maybe is there, there is a whole, there is a whole book to, to write about this. And so then when you have those foundations, you then start filling the gaps. And so I start researching at 
the Walt Disney Archives. I start researching at the Animation Research Library. I start contacting the families of those artists. I start digging into private archives. I start looking at, is there anything um, in, um, in special collections in universities? Uh, and, and by looking at special collections, that, that's one of the ways that I actually discovered the document that everybody thought had been lost, including the family of Alan Elma Milot, which was the autobiography of Al and Elma Milad from their time that, that year they spent in Alaska for the Walt Disney Studio. And so it's a, it's a 300 page book, uh, which has all of the details day to day of what they were, they were going through. And that plus their diaries, plus their correspondence and so on means that, that the story started to come alive in a way that I'd never, um, knew could happen. And, and so, uh, um, connecting that to the story of the research trip on Bambi, to the story of the educational projects during World War II, uh, to those early days of research for uh, for the Alaska project, which became Seal Island and the Alaskan Eskimo. I thought, oh wow, this is a whole story that I had no idea existed. And so that was that was one example of the uh, of the research project, the research process. It can be very different, and I'll give you another example in a second while I. When I talk about the uh, the Mickey Mouse um, book project, so <clears throat> before you get sorry, before you get into the actual writing stage, so you have all of your research. What does it look like organizing your research and then turning it into your words, your book? So that's a great question, and and it's a great question for a couple of reasons. So the, the first thing I do when, when, when I gather, gathered all of that research is I do two things. I do, the first one is I extract, the, the first one actually I do is organize all of this in chronological order. Uh, I, I need all of the documents to, uh, to be organized chronologically, and then I read them chronologically. So that's the first step. The second step is while I'm reading them, I'm trying to focus on what are the, the best quotes in those documents, what are the, um, the, the best sentences, the best paragraphs that, that help me understand the story better. And so I'll, I'll highlight those and I'll uh, put those in a separate file, uh, all in chronological order again. Um, and there are several reasons for that. The, the first one is I've always loved to read stories that are told by the people who actually lived uh, those those events and uh, lived through those events. And so that's one reason. The other one is, frankly, because I had a big, big challenge in front of me when I started writing books in English. What's my big challenge? English is not my maternal language. I speak it pretty well. Um, I write it relatively well. But I knew that writing full books in my own voice from start to finish would be incredibly tough. Uh, and so I thought, okay, well, how do I make a strength of that, of that weakness? Um, how do I use this to my own advantage? And I thought, okay, what am I good at? Well, I'm good at organizing ideas. I'm good at research. Um, and I can write really good introductions and really good conclusions, but it's going to be very, very tough for me to tell the full story in my own voice. That being said, what I really love uh, when I read books about history is hear people tell me about the events that they lived through. And so I thought, okay, well, here is what's going to make my books different. I'm going to use a lot of quotes. That's going to have the advantage of making the books come alive. Uh, 
And that means that I'll have a little bit less to write. I'll have to write really strong introduction. I'll have to be very, very clear on the transitions. I'll have to, uh, if there are some facts that need to be communicated, I'll need to do that really well. But but the story will be told by the people who lived it. Uh, and so that's that's the creative process. That's that's the way I I approach those um, th those projects. Uh, it's still you still need to. Um, uh, to do a lot of creation, uh, but the creation is slightly different. It's really a, a process of selection and then a project of, of presenting all of this uh, in the best uh, in, in the best and most entertaining way possible. It's funny that you mentioned the quotes because we have, so under our podcast banner, we have a few different shows. We have a Marvel show, a Star Wars show. Right now, this is like our umbrella show. Uh, but we also have a park space show called the Extra Magic Hour, and I do an Imagineering feature on that. And I focus a lot on the quotes about the people that I'm talking about, the Imagineers that I'm talking about, or quotes that they've given directly themselves. And it does. It paints this beautiful picture because you can't pretend you were there when you have the words of someone who actually was there. It just speaks so much more profoundly. That's right. That's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Right. So we've talked about your writing, your research. So where do you go from there? Like, what do you do next? Well, what do you do next? Uh, once uh, once you have researched, when you have, once you have written um, the, the, the book or the monograph, um, the next phase is twofold. Um, on the one side, you send that text to the editors who will uh, give us feedback and not just feedback on uh, like there's a dot missing here or there's a, there's a misspelling here, but they'll tell you, you know, very honestly, this, this part isn't clear enough or uh, you need a bit more context here or you need to rework this and that. And so that's very helpful, very uh, useful, uh, especially when it comes from your peers, uh, people who know a lot about the, the history. And so they'll, they'll even uh, uh, tell you, you know, have you thought about this or that? Have you looked here or there? Uh, and so, and so that that helps making the uh, the text stronger. But then the, the other part, obviously, of the of the research and of the uh, the whole process are the illustrations. Uh, and so, uh, in parallel to writing the text, I would be um, uh, researching uh, illustrations at the photo library uh, at Disney, uh, also within the, the collections of the artists, and also at the animation research library and in private uh, in private archives. And so, once I've gathered all of the documents that I need in high resolution for uh, for those monographs, and again, I, I make sure that I check. Everything that has been written, everything that has been published before, to try and and release as many unseen documents as possible. I, I hate duplicating what has already been done in the past, except when it's absolutely necessary. Well, after I've done that, I usually have gathered like 200, 300 illustrations for for those those books. And so, what you need to do is two things: write the captions for all of those illustrations. But then you also need to organize them in such a way that the person who will create the layout will know exactly where those need to go and, and what they relate to. Uh, and so then I build um, a big Excel file where all of those illustrations, those 200, 300 illustrations are organized um, in the order in which they will go into, into the book. And so in some cases, I will even add notes uh, saying, well, this one needs to go, needs to be full page, or this one uh, is less important that it needs to be handled this way, or that one needs to be modified a little bit that way, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then the layout 
person, in, in this case for the Hyperion Historical Alliance series, it's a person called Steve Rizel, who is incredibly talented. Uh, Steve will use that to create the layout. And, and the reality is that Steve is as passionate uh, as I am and as the other members of the Alliance are. So he's going to take that and he's going to plus it. So in the case of the um, the origins of Walt Disney's true life adventure, I'd sent him quite a lot of photographs and, and pieces of artwork and so on and so forth. But he said, you know what? There's a lot in this book, which is about trips that some people are taking in different places of, of first uh, the United States in Maine and also to Alaska. And to understand the story better, it would be better if we had maps. And so he came up with the idea of adding some maps, and he created those maps, and, and they illustrate the uh, uh, the book. And, and frankly, uh, I understand the story even better by looking at those maps. And so I'm, I'm the first one for anyone else to benefit from from that uh, uh, from that idea from from Steve. And so that's what happened. That's what happens next. And then. We go to layout, and then Disney approves everything. And then once Disney has approved everything, then the um, then the book goes to the printer, uh, and and we got the, the finished copies a few months uh, a few months later. And I've the chance of presenting them at the twenty three Expo and and in other places. It's amazing. It's very exciting and interesting for me to hear the process because writing children's books is something that I'm currently working on. So I've just started putting my first couple pieces together. So kind of hearing your process helps me figure out where I need to and want to go next. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome and congratulations. Thank you. We'll see how far it goes. We'll see where it goes. I'm a kindergarten teacher. So writing some uh, educational informational things on how to regulate emotions and things like that, that parents can use to read to their children and, you know, help them with surviving being a child because it's rough out there these days. <laughs> oh, it is. Yes. Mm -hmm. Has always been, but even more. Yeah. So yes, agreed. Mm -hmm. Can I ask how many times do you think you read one of your books but before it gets published fully, like from start to finish, do you like sit down and like, read it every time it comes back from the editor? Do you like look through it? How does that work? You you, you read it again every time it comes back from, from the editors. And then when it comes back to the person who works on the layout, really. Uh, and uh, you don't necessarily reread re the whole thing every time. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, depending on the stage you're in, you, you focus on just the, the corrections. But uh, but yeah, at least three, four times uh, minimum uh, before it gets. Uh, I, was gonna say, I was listening to a documentary and she was talking about how she rewatched her documentary six times in one day because of the edits they were doing. So it's just like, it amazes me how knowledgeable you just get into all of your own stuff, like, and how much like, I mean, just how much you will have to know and how much you reread everything to make sure it's perfect. Yeah, um, I try, I try. Try. <laughs> Uh, do you have like a project or something that you um, either a piece that you worked on or like a piece of art, something that like was just so satisfying when you found out like the full history, like either it was something super difficult to research. And when you found it out, it was just so exciting or something that just had like a bigger history than you ever imagined when you finally dug deep into it. That's really interesting. Um, yes. Yes, and, and uh, th there are a few examples, but I'll, I'll give you one example, which is really top of mind at the moment. So you would think, okay, uh, the 1930s were the golden age of Disney, uh, and then Mickey Mouse is his most famous character. So you would think, like I did for years and years, everything has been written about Mickey Mouse in the 1930s. 
And then came the pandemic. And during at the beginning of the pandemic, I'm like, what do I do now? Because uh, I need to research Disney history. That's the way I relax. But the, um, the, the researching Disney history is going to be very, very tough for at least a year or two years. And I realized at the time that the pandemic would actually not last two weeks, but would probably last quite a bit of time. I realized it fairly early. And I'm like... I'm not going to be able to visit the Disney archives. I'm not going to be able to visit the animation research library for a while. So which Disney research project can I undertake without having access to the Disney archives and the Walt Disney, um, the, the animation research library? And I thought, you know, there, there's one thing I've always wanted to research is the, uh, um, the history of the Fanchon and Marco Mickey Mouse stage shows from the early 1930s, because very little has been written about them. And I wonder if there is more to the story. And so I started digging into that. And that led to me researching also some things related to Mickey Mouse on radio in the 1930s and Mickey Mouse in marionette shows in the 1930s, both in the US and outside of the US. And what then down on me was the fact that in reality, there was an immense chunk of the history of Mickey Mouse in the 1930s that we knew nothing about, that no one had researched. And there was, in fact, so much, both in terms of information that would, that would help write the text and in terms of never-seen-before illustrations, that there was enough for two volumes on the subject, if not three volumes on the subject, uh, for literally two or three books that would revolutionize the way, our understanding of, of Mickey Mouse in the 1930s and how big a star he was, both in the US and outside of the US, and how omnipresent he was, not just on the screen and not just in comic books, which we, we know obviously a lot about already, but also in those other ventures like stage shows, official stage shows, official marionette shows, um, parades, parades all across the US, not just the Macy's Parade, but, but parades in Ohio, parades in, uh, um, in, in lots and lots and lots of places of the US, parades in Canada, parades in Europe, and so on and so forth. And, and then all of those radio shows that, that existed around Mickey Mouse in the 1930s, culminating in, in what we know as the Mickey Mouse Theater of the Air, but with a story that starts in 1931 or even earlier until 1938, 1939. And then all of those Christmas decorations all around the US, incredibly elaborate Christmas decorations, animated Christmas store windows and so on and so forth, all across the US, everywhere. Um, and, and you would, you would, you would be at Christmas from from in the US from 1932, 1933 to 1937, Mickey Mouse was everywhere. It was just, he was unavoidable. Uh, and so there's this whole incredible story that has never been told before and which I stumbled upon in great part because of me trying to find this small project to tackle during the pandemic. And, and yes, that was an absolute revelation. Uh, there are quite a few others, but this is this is the first one that, that comes to mind. So hearing that is awesome, how you like came to this topic that nobody was studying. So is there a topic that you have always wanted to research or a topic that you've always wanted to write about that you haven't gotten to research or write about yet? I, 
the the, uh, the honest answer is I'm not sure, uh, Sam. I uh, um, the way it, what I've discovered also um, in in all of those years of research is that your um, your research is as good as the documents that survive and exist, and so. Um, so it's really an iterative process where you find stuff and then you realize that there is a story there and then you dig deeper. Um, and, and so, yes, there are, there are a few projects that I have uh, in mind at the moment. There, there is something about some of the Disney shorts from the, the 1950s, incredibly enough, uh, which have not been discussed much in the past and I would like to research. There, there is absolutely one project that, that is at that I will tackle one day, probably in collaboration with my friends J.B. Kaufman and David Gernstein, which is something needs to be written in depth about the Disney shorts from the 1930s, about the creation of the Disney shorts from Absolutely. the 1930s, something very comprehensive. Uh, but there are still pieces of information. Um, there, there are still a few documents that I knew existed at some point, and especially one of them I have about a third of that document, that if we don't find the other two thirds, then it's very difficult to tell the full stories of those shorts uh, from the 1930s. And I, I'm hoping that that document will reappear one day somewhere. <laughs> we uh, hope so too, because then we get a new book to read. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just can't believe how extensive the research is and how you have to let your collaborating with so many people and how deep you get to dive but also how much work it is to do that. seems like a full-time job, just finding the research and being engulfed and diverging into it day after day. Uh, you said you had another research example, a research, you said a second example of what your research process looks like? Well, I, I gave you a little bit uh, of that when I when I described the research process on the, the Mickey Mouse um, books, um, uh, where really the, the, the research is, in this case, was really digging into old uh, newspaper articles. And then from there, that led to research at the Disney archives on more things. Uh, but, but the reality is what, what I do in a case like this is uh, I try to focus also on names. Uh, names are a fantastic starting point. So I, I knew there was a person called Francis Hooper whom I had found in some articles from the 1930s who had presented a, a project of a radio show to, to Disney at that time. And so I started digging a lot more into her history. And that's how I stumbled upon some correspondence from that time period where she describes a visit to the Disney Studios in 1931 uh, and, and with everything that happened at the time and how she was developing the project with Walt and Roy and their uh, attorney, Gunther Lessing, and, and so on and so forth. And, and so those, those letters would not have seen the light of day if it weren't that I knew who Francis Hooper was, who no one really knew anything about and, and especially knew about his, her connection to, um, to Disney. And so focusing on those names leads you to finding more and more and more. And then after that, we, we found a whole file about her at the Disney archives, which shed a lot more lights again on that on that whole project. Same thing with the, the marionette shows. Uh, there were a few people, a person called Jean Gros and um, um, some some um, two brothers called the Hestwood brothers and so on and so forth. When you start focusing on those names, you start finding more and more and more information uh, that is very relevant and, and even more important, correspondence diaries and so on, which, which bring the whole story to life, which is what's really this is all about, is, is trying to bring all of this to, to, to life. 
Thank you for so much for the research that you do do and putting it all together for us to consume because we love being able to learn new things about Disney, but we don't have the access that necessarily everyone else does. You know, we, so we consume as much as we can to, to kind of feed that urge of wanting to learn and know more because it is something that we are incredibly passionate about. So thank you for all of the hard work that you put in. Sure. My, my pleasure. I mean, I'm, I'm just so glad that other people enjoy reading about it. Frankly. Absolutely. Um, and like you said, you do it for you and then you share it for others. I think that's, almost the best way to to share your passion because if you're doing it for yourself and then it just benefits other people after you know you've got your cup filled so I think that's a beautiful process do you get to go to the parks often uh yeah I, I do go to the parks from time to time um do you have I, a favorite uh, park well I'm, I'm pretty close to Walt Disney World so um that that would be the go-to at the moment uh, but but of course it's difficult to choose a favorite one you know uh, Disneyland Paris is obviously extremely close to my heart uh, uh, that was for me revolutionary obviously living in France when they opened Disneyland Paris in 1992 and it was for me the most beautiful of all Disney parks I mean it is the most beautiful in yeah. terms of um, creative elements and so on and so forth then Disneyland California is is really really dear to my heart because you still have Walt spirit there uh, it's yep. it's it's really there is the whole intimacy of the, the whole park and so on which which is fantastic and then uh, uh, intimate. I mean, the intimate aspect of of the park, which is which is great, and then and then Walt Disney World with uh, with so much to to discover. And and we had the chance with my wife to uh, to visit Tokyo Disney Sea at some point a few years back, and that was pretty mind blowing uh, too, without a doubt. And hopefully one day Shanghai and um, and Hong Kong. We'll see. We'll see one day. I think if I had to pick an international park to visit, Disney Sea would be my first choice. So. Um. But there's a lot of the unwritten backstory of Disney there. Like, I'm a huge fan of the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, so I know, like, the little pieces that are hidden throughout that park. Um, so I definitely want to go. Do you have a favorite ride or a favorite attraction? Yes, I, I had a favorite ride, which unfortunately just uh, closed. Um, uh, Splash Mountain was my yeah. favorite ride. Yes. Okay. So do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners? Um, just to say that there is so much more to come and that uh, I hope you can all discover this series of monographs because I think they'll be uh, quite a bit, whatever your area of interest when it comes to Disney history, there'll be something for you in that in that series. And we need the support because we're a nonprofit. And, we will uh, make sure we share those out. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Brianna, do you have any other questions? I, I don't think so. This is very comprehensive. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So where, where can our listeners find your books if they wanted to purchase them right now? Sure, absolutely. There, there are two ways to find the books. Uh, when it comes to the monograph series, the best way is to go to a store called Stuart Ang Books. Uh, but uh, if that's uh, too much of a or then you just go to Amazon and you'll find all of the books on, on Amazon. Yes, I would I recommend getting them direct through Stuart Ang. That would be better for us, but go to Amazon. You'll find them too. We will, we will share the links for Stuart Ang. Yes. Um, so 
I'm trying to figure out where else I want to go here because there's like so much going on in my head. Uh, you also have an incredible blog. Do you want to talk about your blog a little bit? Because you share some pretty information on there. Sure. I mean, um, I think it was 10 years ago already or even more than a friend of mine said you should uh, should launch a blog. And I'm like, um, so I, I don't have enough to do already with like my job and, uh, and, and everything else that I'm doing in terms of Disney history. And so I resisted that for quite a while. And then I started finding so many fascinating piece of Disney history that I had never heard about that I decided, you know what, let's, let's start a blog and I'll share uh, those uh, pieces of Disney history that I'm discovering that are really fun and also share news about upcoming books uh, because that's obviously my big passion is uh, all of the books that are released about Disney history. And so uh, I'll share information about the upcoming books, the recently released books, uh, uh, publish uh, short reviews of those of those books. And, and maybe that, that will be of interest to, to a few people. And apparently it is. So, yeah. And I follow you on social media. You are doing book reviews constantly. So I'm every once in a while, I'll get a book idea from you of something that it may not be Disney, but I still have interest in. So I'll look into it. And it is very clear that uh, literature is your is your calling. It's your passion. You like to read. You like to write. Uh, and I think that's great. So if you don't have anything else that you want to share, then we can get ready to close the show out. That sounds great. It has been an absolute, absolute pleasure to be on the show. Thank oh, you so much, Tom and Brianna. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Walt's Apartment Podcast. And we'll see you soon. 